This podcast is made possible by Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary. Not realizing its potential, however, could be. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. You don't need to be a bioengineer to help change the shape of humanity. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. Eric, later this month, the 29th, technically, the ETF first started trading. And the history of the ETF is actually something that you and I know a little bit about. The first ETF out of the gate was Spider SPY. And we've talked to a lot of people about the history of the ETF, but there was one person that we actually haven't had a chance to ever talk to, and we got him for today's episode. Who is he? Jay Baker. Um, and Jay Baker, and he can correct me if I'm wrong, but I would call him a founding father of the ETF world. He worked with Nate Most and Steve Bloom, who were at the American Stock Exchange, and that's where the, that's where the idea was formed. And it's a fascinating story because Amex was in third place behind NASDAQ and and NICE, and they were looking for something to get volume. And so they were, it's like this story of um, the sort of down and out exchange looking to uh, get something going. And um, they weren't getting good listings. And so they decided to just create their own thing. You know how necessity is the mother of innovation. Uh, this is a great case of that. And so Jay, I believe, was at Amex and was tasked with coming up with a marketing plan for this new thing um, called SPIDER, which stands for S&P Depository Receipts. And today, SPY, just to bring you up to date, is $372 billion. That's the biggest ETF in the world. It also trades the most of any ETF, um, usually trades more than the next two or three stocks combined. So it is a monster. It's like a, it's created a whole ecosystem around it. Can't say enough, can't really overstate how big of a success and hit this one ETF was. And as was said in a book I wrote, that they started out making a product, but ended up creating an industry. And so Jay was right there in the early days. It's going to be fascinating to hear him uh, kind of go through some of those uh, early memories and moments. Also joining us for this episode, Katie Greifeld, a reporter with Bloomberg News and a frequent guest on Trillions, as well as, of course, Jay Baker, who's the founding member of Exchange Traded Concepts, and he's also a founding father of the ETF. And should also just mention that we're going to re-release something that Eric and I made a number of years ago called the ETF story, which will probably come up during the conversation today, but it has a number of really interesting interviews with key people who helped create the ETF, that first ETF, Spider, Spy, as well as the industry that came about afterwards. This time on Trillions, founding father, Jay Baker. Jay, Katie, welcome to Trillions. Thank you very much. Thrilled to be here. Okay, Jay, let's rewind the clock. You, yep. you were at the American Stock Exchange in the late 80s. Yep. For st students of history uh, about the ETF, the ETF was basically incepted in a white paper about Black Monday that the SEC put together. Um, and there were two characters that um, Eric mentioned there, Nate Most and Stephen Bloom, who basically read that report 
found a passage in it and almost reversed engineered something that was requested by the SEC. So when did you first hear about what they were working on? Okay, so uh, let me start with you had portfolio uh, insurance that didn't work well on, on that particular day. And what that led to next at the American Stock Exchange, there was a filing in 1988 for IPS, Equity Index Participations. And believe it or not, this product was actually launched. It was basically like the spider, but it was based on cash. That product did gain some attention. There were people trading it. And the Chicago Mercantile sued the Amex. And they said it's a futures contract. Now, there were differences in this product. First of all, it's traded on a stock exchange. Futures have a duration. The IPS equity index participations did not. You could buy it on uh, margin and the margins and futures are much less. So nonetheless, the Chicago Merck sued and they won the lawsuit. So next thing you know, I was calling up firms and saying, look, the IPS are going to stop trading on such and such a day. After that, uh, and once again, Nate, Nate, Nate Most and Steve Bloom were involved with that. But it's exactly what you mentioned before, Eric, that the American Stock Exchange would try to get the large listings. Starbucks and IBM went to the New York. Very, very difficult. Washington Post was at the Amex. There were a bunch of oil and gas companies. But difficult to get listings at the Amex. So this really, uh, the IPS part of this, but Spider, Steve Bloom and Nate Most got together and were trying to figure out how you could create a product that was physically backed. Couldn't do it on cash. We're sued that was backed by the actual securities. So Nate Most had a background in commodities, so he was used to gold and silver and, and the commodities being warehoused in, in a uh, warehouse. So he's trying to figure out how do you warehouse 500 stocks? So they got together with State Street Bank, with SLK, which was a lead market maker. Uh, Catherine Moriarty was part of the legal team and they all brainstormed. And when I talk about some of the uh, people that were involved, it was Nate Most, it was Steve Bloom, no doubt about it, Jim Ross, uh, Kathy Kukolo, Glenn Francis, all involved with the plumbing of the spider. Uh, there was a guy named Gary Eisenreich at Spear Leeds and Kellogg. He was very instrumental in, in, in helping out and, and getting the trading going. And Kathleen Moriarty seemed to be most of the time the key lawyer uh, for the spider. Now, remember, it was a unit investment trust, so it was it had no board. One of the reasons it was a unit investment trust is you have no board. If the product had failed, you didn't have to continue to pay several board members. The disadvantage of a unit investment trust is you cannot loan out any of the securities for stock loan. It's actually a more conservative structure. But that was one of the motivations for keeping it as a unit investment trust, which it still is uh, uh, to this day. So the, the product um, also was helped a lot by State Street Bank being involved with it. There was tremendous credibility because State Street decided to be the custodian. The Amex spoke with a couple of large firms and, and State Street was the one that really uh, wanted to be the uh, custodian for this product. So the product started trading and I'll bring up a story where uh, one of my colleagues called a uh, block trader at a firm and said, hey, listen, if you trade a bunch of spiders, I'll give you a spider's hat. And on day one, if you notice, there was a million shares traded. So there were a couple of prints of 500,000 shares um, that were done because somebody was getting a spider hat. So <laughs> after that, so day one was a tremendous, you know, there, there, was a, there was a lot of trading on the product. 
But uh, as time went on, the trading sort of got much lower. And, and by March, April, May, there was one particular day where it traded 17,500 shares. And what happened was myself um, and Steve Bloom were called to Ivers Riley. Ivers Riley was the senior executive vice president at the American Stock Exchange. He mysteriously called us up to his office and he brought, brought us in and he said, listen, I want you two to get together, come up with an institutional marketing plan for the spider, and I want you to get $200 million in the spider by the end of the year. This was probably in, I don't know, May, late April, something like that. And he said, you're going to report directly to me. I want, I want you guys to come in every two weeks and uh, uh, speak to me about, about the progress that you're making. So Steve and I basically got in touch with all the block trading desks on Wall Street, Goldman Sachs, Deutsche Bank. I think Kidder Peabody might have been around back then, Citibank. And we went to all these firms and spoke to them. And, you know, there was interest. There was interest, but it was a little bit of a shrug of the shoulders. So we kept on pursuing going to a lot of these large uh, uh, trading firms. And at one point, I called a the head, the West Coast senior sale, mutual fund sales manager about the spider. And I said, uh, listen, have you heard about the spider? And we had to make these calls at the American Stock Exchange. Every time there's a new option, you had to call the different broker dealers. They all shrugged their shoulders, said thanks. So I made a, a call to the senior person at, at a large broker dealer. And I said, look, I'm calling about the spider. And he goes, hold on. He goes, I love the spider. I own the spider. And you are never, ever, ever going to get in our office again. And by the way, uh, I hope you fail. Huge slap in the face. This, this was uh, the Will Smith, Chris Rock point in my life. You know, just I was like, whoa. I mean, um, I'd made a lot of calls on behalf of the Amex and nobody had ever had, you know, such a violent reaction. But the fact of the matter is this particular firm had an S&P 500 uh, uh, product that was 80 or 90 basis points set up as a mutual fund. So that was the day, as far as I'm concerned, that was the turning point. The hostility of that phone call, I turned to Steve and I said, this is going to be successful. Because we never get a reaction like that. It was a threatening product because many, many different firms had S&P 500 funds internal that were much more than nine and a half basis points, uh, uh, which was where the spider was at. So believe it or not, even though it was a slap in the face, it was a great slap in the face because to me, it gave me confidence that this product was going to uh, do, do well. So then what we did was we continued going to these different firms. And one of them we went to was Daiwa Securities. And the individual that uh, we were speaking to was named Jim Phillips, and he ran a group of maybe six or seven program traders, index arbitrageurs, and he was interested in, 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 in the spider. Now, um, I don't want to make this more complex than it should be, but there was another product out at this point. It was called the Super Trust. So the Amex the Super Trust uh, had six different parts to it. Money market, S&P with a put option, covered call. But the one, they did have one piece that was similar to the spider. I would say almost identical. The price, I think, was much higher. It was a, a little bit clunky uh, because I think to buy 10 shares, that was a round lot. 
But what was happening with Super Trust was the other pieces weren't going particular, weren't trading a lot, but that piece was trading well. So as I was talking, when we spoke with uh, Jim Phillips at Daiwa, he had a million questions for us. So Steve and I were answering all these questions about the creation redemption process, the flow process. And at one point, and, and the Super Trust uh, uh, product launched in November of 1992, the Spider launched in late January of 93. So they had a three-month head start. They had a billion dollars going into it in subscriptions, not on that product, but I think all the products. And of course, the Spider, you know, the Spider came out at 45 because the, S- the, the S&P was at 450. The average price of a stock on the New York Stock Exchange is around $40. So they use a divisor of 10 to get it to open up at 45. When the Spider started trading on January 29th, there were three creation units. The creation units were 50,000 shares and uh, 150,000 shares were created times a price of 45. About $6.7 million was in the Spider on day one. And now you have $370 billion in the Spider. So many creations since then. But what happened was we kept on badgering Daiwa. We kept on going back and answering questions and answering questions. And one day, Daiwa, and this is while the volume was somewhat tepid. Remember, the opening day trade was just a trade, 500,000, 500,000, no creations, right? You didn't see any creations. So uh, so we kept uh, going back to Daiwa. And finally, one day after we had addressed their questions, two things happened. Um, they mentioned to me, he mentioned that Super Trust had been in there, and then he said, just very casually, you know, they they couldn't answer a lot of questions. And I was like, you know, I, I almost fell over. Didn't say anything, just said nothing, just nodded. So what 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 uh, what they did at Daiwa that day, they literally put in a creation for, I think, about 100 million that day. I mean, went through the process of doing it. And then I think they created another 100 million. So the Spider Trust jumped up a couple hundred million. Then from that day on, or, or shortly thereafter, Spider really never traded less than 100,000 shares a day. In 1994, I think the whole year, they traded 100 million shares, which is 400,000 shares a day. Now, the interesting thing was, why did he do this? Nobody else was seemed to be particularly interested. The reason that Daiwa Securities created a couple hundred million dollars of the spiders is there were people that wanted to short the spider. There weren't enough spiders around to borrow them to short it. So what they did is we called it create to loan. They created 200 million in a couple of tranches of the spider. And meanwhile, remember, they're shorting S&P futures against this position. So they're long $200 million of the spider. They're short $200 million of the futures. So whether the market went up uh, 400 points or dropped 500, their risk was uh, ameliorated. And they kept that position on for probably nine months to 10 months. And they were earning a return on it. Back then, short-term rates, I think one-year treasuries, two-year, 3%, something like that. So that, to me, was a huge turning point. So finally, I'll mention this as well, that when those trades were done, what you saw was the trades were printing away from the exchange. So what people were seeing was, and when I say people, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs are seeing a million. Then a couple of days later, a million. And what happens when they see that, oh gosh, that's 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 $45 million. Who is it? Did we get the call? What's going on? What's and then they saw the creation. So what you saw suddenly was not only was somebody trading that that share amount, but you're seeing assets going into the fund. 
So it alerted people, hey, there's something going on. Look, we have a product right now at ETC that when they come in, they trade millions of shares. All of the big block traders are aware of it. All of them are interested in that type of flow. That's great. That's the whole story. And Daiwa, I think, is is fascinating that sometimes you just need someone to believe in you, you know, one one early believer, early adopter. What you're talking about reminds me of when any new ETF launches, sometimes like an ETF like Jets, uh, kind of hung in oblivion for a couple of years. And then it got a couple trades, had a nice little run in performance, and then boom, it starts trading $100 million a day. And then all of a sudden, people are curious about it. So it's, it's interesting. That set the tone for how every launch, I think, goes after that. Invesco QQQ is a proud sponsor of this podcast and a proud sponsor of accessing the future of innovation. Curious what that means? Well, since March 1999, Invesco QQQ has given investors a way to tap into the NASDAQ 100 in a single ETF. We're talking world-changing breakthroughs that we can't live without today. Gene therapy, telemedicine, AI, EVs, and more. Still curious? Tomorrow's innovation awaits. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents. People who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. I think also what you brought up that was interesting was the fee. I was uh, just exploring the whole world of Vanguard in a book, and the idea of the fee being used to match Vanguard's 500 fund, that way you could compete head-to-head with Vanguard, turned out to be crucial because then, obviously, retail investors could use this. But at 90 bips, it might not take over uh, in the retail market. Did you, when you were selling it, think of it more as a mutual fund that happens to trade or a futures contract that's actually physically backed with the stocks behind no, it? No, 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 no. We didn't sell it ever as a futures contract. As a matter of fact, um, once again, I'm not using names. One of my friends was telling somebody there were country baskets. I think they had something that was similar to an S&P 500 fund. It wasn't exactly. But they, this individual was telling people it was a futures contract. And that was a no-no. I called him up and, and had some choice words with him. Don't start this. 
It's not a futures country. It's backed by physical stock. We always pushed the fact that it was backed. I look, I love the futures. They, it, it was a think about this product. You had futures that traded actively. You had options on futures, and now you had this security backed by the S and P five hundred. They all together, two plus two equaled eight. So, so yeah. Um, now, the, the what you're getting at here is this is was uh, registered under the 1940 Act. And SPY took like four years to get through the SEC. So it sat with the SEC for like four years, which is a long time. Yes. And I think that to your point, that's why I would also be like, no, this is not a derivative. This is an actual uh, mutual fund that passed the same regulation um, as, a, as, a, as a, I don't know, a T. Rowe price or a Fidelity mutual fund. Um, and then this brings up another question. While SPY is sitting in regulatory uh, with the SEC, Canada comes out and launches the TIPS. But according to my interview with Bloom, he says that the Toronto people came down and just Nate Most was just cool and shared information with them. They took the idea to Canada and just got through the regulation quicker. And now Canada goes around saying they were out first. I try to put this the other side to this story out there. But what's your take on that whole thing with Canada and the U.S.? Oh, boy. Um, I'm not <laughs> I, I don't think I was involved with those conversation so i i can't i can't actually say that that that's what happened that's a little bit unclear to me because i i have heard for years that the canadians said that uh uh you know that they actually came out with the idea first and i think you're right it was called tips um but what i will say is one of the and i think kathleen moriarty one of the things she mentioned about spider remember this is the first time something like this was done it was sort of a closed-end fund open-ended fund right so I remember she was saying that when it went to the SEC, it, it went to almost every division of the FCC, investment management, trading and markets, economic and risk analysis. And who knows, it might have even gone to enforcement. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But that was one of the reasons that it took so long. Clearly, that was another reason why it took SuperTrust two years to get their exemptive relief, because theirs was a more complicated structure. Jay, I want to go back to your slap in the face moment that uh, sure. what is it? Will Smith, Chris Rock moment, because this is something I wonder about, especially with like very popular songs. Like did the band, did the artist know that it was going to be such a hit? And you said that you knew that it was going to be successful. But I mean, when when in those four years, when you when Spy was still in development, I mean, did you have any inkling that you know, ETFs were really going to take off to the extent that they have that, you know, one day this would be an almost $400 billion product. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think I had that. I, I, what I did know, partially the reason I brought up the Ips was people like the Ips. And I thought, this is interesting. They like the Ips. They've got to love the spider that's actually backed by, by the physical. And I thought, look, we were, we were told, we were ordered to get $200 million in the that product. We didn't do a lot of thinking about it. I mean, we came up with a marketing plan and, and, and ended up uh, executing. When the volume, let's say in 1994, is averaging whatever, 400,000 shares a day, it was crystal clear this was going to be a multi-billion dollar product. How many billions? I don't know. And look, when you think about the American Stock Exchange, they created this product. It wasn't NASDAQ and it wasn't the New York. Uh, State Street, of course, is the trust they won they run the trust but pdr services is a sponsor and the amex was pdr services they were sort of the steward of the product that had the ability 
to hire and fire a custodian, right? Or a distributor. So, and then it passed on to the New York Stock Exchange. You can look it up. What I think about is um, the American Stock Exchange situation that as the years went by and as it was trading more and more, the Amex uh, market share, the volume at one point towards the end was less than 1%. You get 100 million shares traded. They're not trading a million. They're trading 400,000 shares. All it was trading on the different exchanges. So one of the things, and I'm not, we weren't, you've got to realize with the exchange, you're thinking about trading and exchange fees. But I was uh, speaking with somebody this morning, and what would have been interesting is if the Amex could have gotten two basis points in the spider, two basis points on $370 billion is $75 million based on the assets that they have. Could that have been done? How could you do it? The exchanges are self-regulated. The, 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 the SEC, I don't think, wanted the American Stock Exchange to be, uh, they weren't really an advisor. Could the Amex have created a broker-dealer? Could a clever attorney come up and create a broker-dealer? Maybe the Amex is the distributor, taking the creations and redemptions, getting one or two basis points. And remember another thing, if you could get a couple basis points in the spider, maybe the other people that launched the vanguards, the iShares, maybe they would have been willing to. But um, that's not how it worked out. And in the end, the Amex was trading, I'll, I'll say it again, less than 1% of the total volume of a superior product that they created. Th- that really is um, fascinating and just a, a little tragic. I mean, it's it almost is. like, yeah, you, yeah. Um, good. I never thought of it that way. Here's, here's another thing. I'm just bringing up a couple. I, I know you're probably aware of this, but when the when the uh, a unit investment trust has a lifespan of it's either 20 or 40 years, I think it's 20 years. So what people were worried about at the American Stock Exchange was in 20 years, you have to roll it over to another one. Huge capital gain if, if the S&P was up and the S&P, of course, was up. Remember, Spider was at uh, $45 in... Uh, uh, January of 1993, and now it's almost 400. So there were huge concerns about uh, a rollover. So what they did was they ended up, and this had been done before, what they ended up doing was getting 11 kids. I think you've probably heard this. Yeah, basically. Blue, blue, we, kids we've written that kids. story. Yeah, the, the trust. Yeah, you wrote the whole story. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, you know, they got 11 kids under two years old. And somebody came to my office one day and said, you know, how, how old is your daughter? I said, she's nine months old. Okay, she's going to, we'd like her to be in the Spider Trust. So she was born on May 7th, 1992. So she she's a spider baby. So her name is in the legal docs. And then Cliff Weber's uh, daughter is in there. And Claire McGrath, who is an attorney at the Amex, her son. So that's sort of just an interesting tidbit. By the way, when, the, when, when, uh, when Bloomberg got in touch with me, they mentioned that I had totally forgotten that I signed signed my daughter's life away on this thing. And uh, then then the reporter came back and said, Jay, you weren't totally being upfront. What do you mean? Is your daughter named Julia? And I went, oh, my God. OK, she was one of the spider babies, but I did not remember it at that time. What I'm thinking about now is, is there any way that I can hire some clever lawyers and maybe get my daughter a basis point on the spider? <laughs> so she's a spider baby. Hopefully they're listening, right? Theoretically. Um, I Good luck with that. So yeah, I, I know. The Spy Kids, I mean, just to recap um, really quickly. So originally Spy was going to, what, expire in 25 years, but now it's when the last 
Spy Kid Perishes? Yeah, basically it is, it, I think it had 10 or 11 kids and it expires 20 years after the death, sort of ghoulish after the death of the last spider baby, which it statistically means about 110 years. That's what it meant statistically. And by the way, according to a friend recently, they said you could do, you could get another set of kids and that is 10 years do the same thing oof, yeah. yikes the the second generation spy kids it's a little <laughs> bit it's a little bit ghoulish to that point i want it is sort of ghoulish thinking about it because <laughs> the tyranny of time it's going to happen the tyranny I won't of be time. around and yeah i'm going to write that down i want to talk about sort of the next 30 years this is something eric and i were actually chatting about this morning because in thinking about spy's 30th birthday obviously it's reigned supreme for 30 years what it has what, over $370 billion in assets. Uh, so by far and away, it's it's dominant, especially when you think about the liquidity. But the question I want to ask, because I'm a Debbie Downer, is who takes the crown away? You know, what? When, how long can Spy remain on top at nine basis points right now when you have, you know, competing products from BlackRock, from Vanguard at three basis points? We'd love to hear your thoughts on that. My thoughts are that um, price makes a difference. And I think at some point, one of those funds could overtake it. I'm not sure that they'll overtake the trading volume, because if you look at the trading volume, they're both millions of shares, right? Mm. uh, There's still millions and millions of shares. But the fact is, they're both at three basis points. You've got a competing product at nine and a half basis points. Nobody should be concerned about the liquidity of the Vanguard or iShares uh, core you know, S&P funds. So it could happen. And if you look at it, they're getting closer. I mean, I think both of those products are in the, one of them I think is around 280 billion. I don't, I don't have it in front of me, but um, it, it's not going to happen on my watch. I just for a quick, interesting fun fact, SPY actually was the biggest ETF the whole time, except for one day. I think in August, 2011, GLD was bigger for one day. Uh, but then it changed and Spy took over one day. So I just want to talk about the folks who created the product, Jay. You know, Nate Moe, Stephen Bloom being probably the most instrumental architects. And and I'm curious, I mean, since you knew them, um, you know, Eric's interviewed uh, Bloom before. Um, he's he's pretty quiet these days. Nate Most obviously passed away years ago. He was pretty old when he actually helped create it, right? So I'm yes. curious, what did it what did it take? What was it about uh, those two guys and, and the people around them that led to this financial innovation? Well, you know, they were, um, so Nate, I think Nate Most got his job at the Amex when he was 70. You know, Nate Most, I had, I, I, I got along with him. He spoke his mind. He 70 years old, 71, 73. He did not pull punches. I wouldn't, I don't think he was particularly, uh, I don't think he was particularly political. And he, he, he spoke up. And the other thing is, and I am friendly with Steve Blome and, and he's, yeah, he's, um, he's, he's still working, but not, not in the securities business. And uh, Steve Bull, uh, Steve Bloom was a bull. He was a PhD from Harvard and they got it in, in his mind to get this thing done. And he was one of the individuals that really pushed, pushed this thing through the SEC. And don't get me wrong, you know, Jim Ross and Glenn Francis, Kath, Kathy Kukolo, but I'm talking about those two individuals at the Amex. The, the idea originated at the Amex. And as I said, PDR was the steward of the product and was involved with getting the different uh, service providers. 
But um, look, they had a dynamic chemistry, and, and I would say it was dynamic. It was not were they all huggy wuggy. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. I, I would say that they, 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 they were both very. Uh, both of them were strong-willed people. Well, and I, think it, I think it just two plus two equaled eight in getting things done. The other thing that about those two that I found interesting was, as you said, um, most might have been seventy-three-ish, seventy-four. And Bloom was 27. You rarely have two people working together with that massive of an age gap. And I, I have to think that played a part in that, I guess, Bloom more book smart at that point. And, but most had a lot of life experience. Um, yes, yes. Worked at, on submarines. I mean, worked at the Pacific. All, all that, I feel as though when someone has that much experience, they're able to like pull from that and use and find templates Yes. And then Bloom probably had some of the, um, I guess, the youth that's like, we can do this, like, d- doesn't know what can't be done. And I think that age gap is really just unusual. That is unusual. And what I would say about Bloom is he's an executioner. He knows how to execute. When he gets in his mind, he's going to execute. He's, he is not going to give up. He's an executioner. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What do you think the ETF has yet to accomplish that it still needs to? So I think last year there was $607 billion that came in, slightly lower than the year before. I think it was uh, it was uh, 750 billion. So what we're seeing is um, at ATC, we're seeing a lot of interest from mutual funds that want to do conversions, right, for for tax efficiency. 
And it's tricky because if you think about the mutual funds, one of my uh, friends was telling me one of the reasons that clients, you know, stay in mutual funds is and, and, and not get out and just, you know, buy buy a spider or something like that is huge capital gains. They've, they've, they've had, uh, you know, they've owned the mutual fund forever. So if you can convert a mutual fund in a tax-free manner, you still have your low cost basis, but you're not getting hit with a sale. I think that's a huge, huge advantage. And we're seeing more uh, mutual funds doing this. The same thing with separately managed accounts. There are firms out there with large and small separately managed accounts that uh, have started to convert their separately managed accounts into ETF because the ETF is, is a more tax efficient structure. I think we're at just the beginning of, of that. And this could be billions and billions of dollars because generally, if you think about the mutual funds that are going to do it, they're probably larger ones, but, you know, mutual funds that have, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. You could do it for a small one as well. But we're getting the phone calls on, on this. Lots of people are getting the phone calls on it. We're ready to do it. And, um, I think that that's going to be a, a huge part of the growth. What I will say is it's harder to do the thematic. I mean, you look at the thematic products. A lot of them went up. They went down. It's harder to do a thematic. You have to have something very, very interesting and unusual. And one of my favorite ETFs, and Eric, you brought it up, was the Jets. I'd been watching that for years. And uh, quite frankly, he's the only one that has it. It was sort of dormant for six or seven years. And exactly what you said, pandemic came. The airlines were super volatile. That thing started, that thing had 40 million. It popped up to 6 billion with millions of shares traded. But not every ETF does it. That, that luckily for the individual running, he kept it open. And for eight years, it didn't do a lot. Got up to 100, dropped to 40. But um, the pandemic ignited. That was, that was like a stick of dynamite for, for the airline, that air, airline ETF. Well, another stick of dynamite, I'm not sure how exactly I want to phrase the metaphor here, but when you think about the pandemic and what it meant for ETFs, I mean, it's hard not to have a conversation about fixed income ETFs, for example, like the Fed actually stepping in, buying credit ETFs. I feel like that was a big um, you know, point of legitimization. Is that a word, Joel? Go you're, with it. you're the you're the it. editor here. Yeah. Um, but I, I kind of, I mean, we're talking about sector ETFs. We talk, just brought up fixed income ETFs. Jay, I want to get your thoughts on whether we're like reaching the existential limits of what an ETF is, because one of the big innovations in 2022 was single stock ETFs, for example. So again, just in reflecting on the past 30 years, going from just a passive uh, index tracking exchange traded fund, which was extremely revolutionary, here we are uh, you know, talking about single stock ETFs, all flavors of leveraged ETFs. We still don't have a Bitcoin ETF, but what more white space is there? Yeah. So what I think is, I I, I still think that there's a lot of room for uh, fixed income ETFs, and there are a couple of new companies there that have launched, like twenty five bond blocks is mm. one, and I think they've got a lot of people there. They've got a good in- infrastructure. I think they're. They're going to get there. Look, the single stock ETFs, the only one that's got any assets is really the Tesla. I think it's up to 100 million. The rest of them really haven't done well. Uh, you're going to you're always going to have and I'm not I'm not against this, you know, but I never really thought that the single stock ETFs would do that well. Um, I understand people, you know, trying to, you know, uh, you know, strike lightning again. 
But, um, you know, the market sort of said that there's not that much interest in those particular products. Yet I would say, you know, a set of 25 new, very low price, different fixed income products, I think I think that'll work. I think that there will continue to be new and clever ETFs. The single stock, I, you know, I shrug my shoulders about it. <laughs> not against them. If they take off, go, go, go. But yeah, I, I, you know, a lot of the I remember interviewing some other of the founding father types. And I think a lot of them were just like, uh, it's hard to believe what they've put into ETFs over the years, but they were just thinking of equities at the time. Uh, but yeah, it's a great technology. Um, I, I compare it to the MP3 in that it, it, it's, it's, some, it's not an asset class. It's not a sector. It's a vehicle. It is something that has made the consumption or the get people getting exposure cheaper, easier, more flexible, more liquid. So you're going to see a lot of people try a lot of stuff, I think, in the ETF wrapper over the years. But most of the flows are probably are going to go to plain vanilla stuff. And the conversions are interesting because that's instant flow. I mean, that's that's probably money that would eventually have left the mutual fund structure and gone to the ETF anyway, slowly in a migration. So the fund company is smart, in my opinion, just to move them right over and not lose those people. I think that makes a lot of sense. And so we're very bullish conversions, as you are. And yeah, I think right now ETFs account for 25% of the assets mutual funds have, but I do see that number eclipsing 50%, maybe even 75% over the next 30 years. Um, I think mutual funds in 401ks probably are going to, uh, that's their Alamo. I don't, I think they'll be there a long time. ETFs don't really, they don't like have a lot of advantages inside of 401k versus outside they really do. So I agree with all this. I think it's just, it's fascinating that, you, that you're still in the industry and that you're like helping future spies, if you will, launch every day. There's only a few of you, I could probably count them on one hand, that have been there since basically day one and are still doing their thing in the industry. Yeah, no, I don't know whether that's good or bad, but uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I still I still enjoy it. And, uh, you know, I'm still with, with ETC. I mean, we're up to, you know, I don't know, five and a half billion. So we do hear a lot of interesting ideas. And remember another thing, the marketplace sorts out these products too. Yeah. Somebody comes up with something that cl that's clever and and, and good, it, it 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 will draw assets. You know, on the flip side, I still think you need a lot of marketing when 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 you're launching these products. Well, just real quick on this, this is something people miss. They're like, oh, ETF, so much marketing, and that was Bo one of Bogle's complaints. I get it, but here's the thing: mutual funds literally paid off a broker, and the broker would put the client. By the way, the payoff came from the the end client. So the whole mutual fund industry was largely built on kickbacks. And so ETFs are a meritocracy. Well, when you have a meritocracy, you got to market more. You've got to try to right. get your voice out there because you can't pay someone off. So I think the marketing is, an, is, a, to re, is a way to kind of replace the kickbacks. And so I understand why there's marketing and there, and there should be. I don't, I don't find it to be – I don't demonize it as much because to me it's better to have more marketing than a system of kickbacks where you're putting – where you're consciously putting – a retail investor money in something you know isn't that good. Yeah, what I, you know, it's interesting because we've got um, a couple of our clients, uh, Robo and EMQQ. One of the things that they do, and I think they've done this successfully, you need to tell a story, as one of them says. But what they do is um, they do webinars, but they do them themselves. So if they're, let's say, uh, in a big broker dealer, They'll send out an invitation to the brokers, uh, financial consultants that are in Florida, 30-minute webinar. And remember, 
if they can speak to one law, one one financial consultant for an hour, they will do that. If they get 30 financial consultants, people say that's terrible. It's not terrible because there's no continuing ed the way these individuals do it. And you've got 30 people speak with one of them for an hour to speak with 30 for an hour. And it costs you five or six hundred dollars. Well worth it. Both of those firms employ that. And both of them, I think that's helped get them assets. Now, once again, you have to have something interesting. You have to know how to tell a story. And you have to keep their their interest. But but I do think that is important and it's hard work. You know, I call it the ETF terror dome for a reason. A lot of the people who use ETFs are smart. It's after tax money, it's picky, and they they got Vanguard in there and they're 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 spoiled. These investors are spoiled. So you really have to find something of value for them. And the good news is I think all the the investors demand creates an industry that has really had to hustle. Not everybody makes it, but anybody can make it. Okay, Jay, last question. I got to ask you, you've been around, you've seen a few tickers. What is your favorite ticker other than any that you've helped launch? Oh, um, you know, I, I, I am, I am fond of jets. I will say that. <laughs> okay, good. Simple <laughs> to the point. Watch it, but I, 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 I think about it more than I should. Yeah. Okay. Good one. <laughs> I mean, you, you guys launched Robo. I think that's what's a top 20-er, but uh, yeah, Jets is right up there. Very now, good. Now, I, listen, of course I would have mentioned our own products, but I helped launch that. So yeah, that's yeah right. That, yeah, that's what I'm saying. So uh, I, don't, I think Robo was brought up once uh, as a favorite ticker. Jay Baker, thanks for joining us on Trillions. All right. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Bye. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Success. It's discipline. It's teamwork. It's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing global wealth management and investment banking firms in the industry. Stiefel. It's where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.